pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would cause us to take our attention off of ourselves, off of the world, to take our attention off of whatever may distract us from the very reason that we are here, to worship you and to hear from you. And so we pray, Lord God, that as we walk through these, this text of Scripture, Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would apply it to our lives. We pray that you would grant us greater humility, that you would crush our pride, and that you would cause us as believers to see ourselves for who we really are and not who we were. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We, uh, we live in a generation that is infatuated with finding our identity. Every time you turn around, every news report, almost every news, at least it seems that way, that nearly every news report you see or read or talk show you might listen to, what we see everywhere is that Americans are trying to find themselves. They are trying to find their identity, seeking to answer the question, who am I? Collectively, Americans, I think, began losing their identity during the Vietnam War. We discovered during the Vietnam era that the war to end all wars, which essentially was part one and part two, was really a farce that wars are endless. That the idea that this will be the last war and then we will have peace is just a pipe dream. We discovered during the Vietnam era to our shock that our government actually lies to us on purpose. And they've been lying to us ever since. As a nation, we discovered during the Vietnam era that the news media does not report what actually happens, but they report their version of reality. People trusted the news before the 1960s. We've not trusted the news ever since. During the civil rights movement and the Jim Crow era, Americans came to realize that America is not as moral as we once thought. It became clear during the 1960s that we have lost the moral high ground, and likely we never had it. In many ways, the Vietnam era shattered the worldview of most Americans. And the result is that we have had generations of Americans trying to find their identity ever since. Who are we as a nation? And who am I as an individual? You hear that question a lot, or that statement, I'm trying to find my identity, or what is your identity? 
But when you really stop and ponder that question, it's really a pretty deep philosophical question that most people would struggle to answer. How do you describe your identity? What does that even mean? I have a driver's license in my wallet. It's got my name and address on it. Is that, is that my identity, my name, address? What do we mean by that? I read an article by Psychology Today that was published in February of 2019 uh, dealing with that very question. What, what does it mean to know your identity? And in part, they said this, quote, identity is forged through years of experience, bonding, learning your history, and attaching yourself to that history, that that is your identity. It is forged through years of experience. In other words, your past experience, what you've been through, what you've learned in the past makes you who you are today. Learning your history and attaching yourself to that history, learning where you come from, who you've come from, what is your heritage, what is your tradition, what is your cultural or economic or social background, is how they say, this is what our identity is. The problem is that we can't change the past. And if our identity is rooted in past experience, in knowing our history, in attaching ourselves to that history, we can't change the past, and therefore we're stuck with who we are in the present, whether we like it or not. For this reason, the question of who I am has been wrestled with for millennia. I mean, literally for thousands of years, poets and philosophers and theologians and historians and artists and even scientists have all wrestled with that question, who am I? How do you answer that question? So important was and is that question throughout all of world history that it was inscribed on the ancient Greek temple of Apollo, above the arch, know thyself. Because without this truth, without knowing who you are, without knowing your identity, without knowing how to answer that question, people wander through life aimlessly trying to figure out, who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Not knowing your identity is like staring at a blank chalkboard that should have your identity on it, but it's blank. And there is this overwhelming urge to put something on it. And so today, sadly, people keep putting something on there that this is my identity. This is who I am only to erase it and then say, no, 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 I'm going to be something different. 
and they keep erasing it, and they keep rewriting it, trying to figure out who they are. The sad thing is, is that all human beings already have an identity. The Bible, which is the inerrant and trustworthy and authoritative word of God, tells us that from the moment of conception, all human beings are created in God's image with the purpose of knowing God and enjoying him forever. If you are a human being, that is your identity. You were created in God's image. You were created and designed to reflect the character of your creator and to know him and enjoy him forever. The sad thing is that when human beings reject their God-given identity and seek to find their own, then chaos and misery and sorrow and grief reign supreme. For the believers, our identity is even more poignant. Because for believers, we are told from God's word that from the moment of conversion, from the moment of conversion, all believers are in union with Christ. With the purpose of knowing Christ, enjoying Christ forever, and proclaiming his gospel. If you're a believer, that is who you are. That is your identity. That is why you exist. That is your purpose and your mission in life. Yet so often, even as believers, we tend to reject our identity. Or at least we forget who we are. And we tend to find our identity in the past. We tend to allow the past to define who we are. When the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, all things are in other words, your identity is not defined by your past experience. You are not the sum of your past mistakes. As a believer, you are in union with Christ. And your purpose is to know Christ, to enjoy him forever, and to make his gospel known. Finding identity in the wrong place leads to a host of problems. And it's not always conscious. I don't think we're always consciously aware of finding our identity in the wrong places or rejecting the identity that God has given us 
But nonetheless, when we lose sight of who we are as human beings, and more significantly, who we are as believers in Christ, it leads to a host of problems in our lives, in our families, within the church. And this is the problem that they are having in Corinth. And this is what Paul is attempting to correct in this passage that we are looking at this morning. Notice Paul continues in our text, and he says in verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? There's that phrase again that is so common in the writings of Paul. Do you not know? It's Paul's way of saying to his audience, you should know this by now. How is it that you've been a Christian for so long and you're still behaving this way? Of course, before we condemn the church in Corinth, how often do we do the same? How often have we seen that in other people, Christians who have been believers for decades, and then they do something or say something that makes you wonder, how is that even possible that you don't know that that behavior is inappropriate? Or we say to ourselves, how is it that I still struggle with this sin when I've been a Christian for so long? Do you not know? That phrase appears 17 times in the entire New Testament. 14 of those are found in the writings of Paul. 14 out of 17 times in the New Testament, Paul uses that phrase. What is really interesting is that 10 of those 14 are found in 1 Corinthians. 10 times Paul will say in this book to the church in Corinth, how do you not know this? And if, as though that were not interesting enough, six of the 10 times that he uses that phrase in the book of Corinth is found in chapter 6. Six times in this chapter, Paul says to the church in Corinth, do you not know? Do you not know? You should know this. Ingrain this into your mind. And what does Paul tell them? Do you not know by now that your bodies are members of Christ? The word for bodies there is the Greek word soma. It is the same word that Paul uses back in verse 13. We talked about it back then. That when Paul uses the word soma, body, in the Greek, he has in mind the whole of who we are. When Paul is specifically talking about our spirit, he will use that word, the word pneuma, and he uses it in verse 17. But when he uses the word body, the Greek word soma, which is different from the Greek word for flesh, that typically is the word sarks, and oftentimes that is a reference to our sinful flesh or sinful passions. But when Paul, when Paul uses the word soma in his writings, he is referencing the whole of who we are, body and spirit, our minds, 
our affections, our physical bodies, our spirit, is what Paul means by that. And so he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Stop and ponder that for a moment. Don't miss the depth of meaning that Paul wants us to grasp. He does not say your spirits are members of Christ, but our bodies, this our physical being, the whole of who we are, are members of Christ's body. Paul will expound on this subject in great depth in chapter 12 when we get there. But let me just read to you what he says in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 12. There Paul will write, for just as the body, it's the same Greek word, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, right? We are one body, but it's comprised of various parts. My finger all by itself is not the body. It's a part of the body. The body is comprised of many parts, and all together makes one body. And Paul says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of one body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, one Holy Spirit, we were all baptized, listen, into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is astounding when you stop and think about it. Because we tend to forget that. That our bodies, our physical bodies, are members of Christ. How is that possible? Paul helps us to understand that when he says things like Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ lives in me, Paul says. Christ himself is indwelling my physical body. Thus, this is Christ's body. And the life I now live, he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Clearly, Paul is remembering the words of Christ in his high priestly prayer. Jesus prayed this to God the Father on the night of his betrayal. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Praying for all future believers, I've given to them. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved 
So Jesus prays to the Father that I would be in them, in believers, and you, Father, would be in me, and that they would all be perfectly one. That we would all be one body. Not just in a spiritual sense. This is what I'm hoping to get you to understand. When we talk about the body of Christ, that we are members of the body of Christ, it's not just in a spiritual sense. It's not just a spiritual reality. It is a physical reality that we are members of Christ's body. The point is that when we talk about union with Christ, this is not only a spiritual union, but Christ himself, by the power of the Holy Spirit, indwells this body, thus making this body his body. He makes this body his body. In other words, as one commentator so eloquently stated it, the life we are to live as believers... The life we are to live is not just the life to which Christ points. It is the life of Christ himself. I'll say that again. The life that we as believers are to live is not just the life to which Christ points. It is the life of Christ himself. That Christ lives in bodily form on this earth through us, the church. Believers are to be the physical hands and feet and eyes of Christ to the world and to each other. In light of that truth, Paul then asks the question in the second part of verse 15, Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. At first, we read that. It is shocking. The first thing that probably shocks us is that here we have believers that are sleeping with prostitutes. I mean, how is that possible? My goodness. That seems like Christianity 101 well, to be fair, we need to understand the culture of Corinth. And when I say that, it, it doesn't mean that regardless of how it was happening, it's still a horrid sin, right? But we don't know the kind of prostitutes that Paul is referring to contextually. There's not enough information for us to know with absolute certainty. Paul is either, either referencing street prostitutes or what theologians refer to as cultic prostitutes or temple prostitutes. When we talk about street prostitutes, well, that's just like the word sounds, women of the night who are making their living by selling themselves to passerbys. But we also know that in ancient Greece, there were what were called cultic prostitutes or cultic prostitution. And this was basically the act of engaging in sexual relations with 
prostitutes outside of the temple as a means of appeasing the gods and increasing one's fertility. This was a way, this was something that was a religious thing that people would go and they would engage in sexual relations with uh, prostitutes outside the temple that were related, connected to the temple in some way to appease the gods and hopefully increase fertility. So couples that were struggling with infertility would oftentimes go and do this in the hopes that it would help them. This was particularly true of the, the temple of Aphrodite. May also be a reference to temple prostitution. There's a difference between cultic prostitution and temple prostitution. Temple prostitution would be uh, the event wherein pagan temples would often throw these festivals, like a, a carnival, if you will, a big street scene festival from time to time. And as a part of those festivities, they would bring out the temple prostitutes and people would engage. And by the way, these were both male and female prostitutes. And people would engage in sexual relations with them as a part of the festivities. Now, of course, all of that is wrong, but likely this is a reference to either cultic prostitution or temple prostitution that the church in Corinth have not fallen too far from the apple tree. They continue to struggle to cut off their past, to make a clean break and to separate themselves from the culture around them. They've been immersed in this culture all their lives for centuries. And apparently for some in the church in Corinth, this continues to be a problem. So Paul addresses it. And he says to them, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? In other words, should I take the members of Christ's body, if we are members of the body of Christ, should I take the members of Christ's body and join them with the prostitute? Use the members of Christ's body to do something immoral with prostitutes. The question itself is even horrid to just consider. Which is why Paul responds with, never, may it never be. May genoita is the Greek. It's another phrase that Paul uses quite often. Uses it 15 times. It's used 15 times in the New Testament. 14 of those are from the hand of Paul. May it never be. It's a horrible thought to even consider. You see, because what Paul wants them to understand is that sexual immorality, sexual relations outside of marriage, is so grievous in the eyes of God, not only because it is what God forbids, but because when a Christian sexually joins himself to a prostitute who represents the forces of evil, in this act, he aligns himself over and against God. So Paul says, 
This cannot be so for the believer. Hence Paul's strong reaction. But then he adds in verse 16, or do you not know? So there it is again. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. So Paul is now drawing from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where after God creates Eve out of Adam, he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Recall that for Paul, body or soma refers to the whole of our being. Keep that in mind as you read through this entire section. Body refers to the whole of our being, body and spirit, or you might say body and soul. Thus, when a man and a woman engage in sexual relations, it is not just the physical joining of two bodies. There is a spiritual union taking place. There is a commingling of souls which takes place in that event. Sex according to Paul, is a spiritual event as well as a physical one. This is why, by the way, sex outside of marriage is such a grievous sin. And why there is no such thing as casual sex. Because it is a spiritual event and not just a physical event. Marriage is not just the uniting of two people, but the uniting of two souls. And this is why divorce is so grievous in the eyes of God. This is because, as Paul says in verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Notice he switches to the word spirit. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Because as believers, we do not become physically joined to Christ's physical body in the sense that Christ does exist in bodily form, even today, in heaven, wherever that is, seated at the right hand of God the Father. The second person of the Trinity, in and of himself, is not omnipresent. Christ himself, in bodily form, is only in one place at one time. He is at the right hand of God the Father. However, by means of the Holy Spirit and because Jesus is God, therefore the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one 
in that sense, Jesus is omnipresent. But nonetheless, when we talk about Jesus in bodily form and our bodies, we are not joined to his bodies. Our bodies are here on earth, and his body is seated at the right hand of God the Father. However, our spirit is united to Christ's spirit. This is because Christ's spirit is the Holy Spirit. The spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit. The spirit of God the Father is the Holy Spirit. We have a spirit. God has a spirit. That spirit is the Holy Spirit. And that same spirit that indwells Christ also indwells us. Thus, we are joined to him in spirit. It is in this way that our bodies, because our spirits inhabit our bodies, and it is in this way that our bodies are members of Christ. But if we get this, if believers take hold of what Paul is saying, then there are tremendous implications for how we live the Christian life, right? This body, not just our spirit, this body, these eyes, these ears, this mouth are members of Christ's body. What we do with this body, we are doing with, say, the hand of Christ, or we're taking the feet of Christ and we're doing something immoral with the hand of Christ. None of us would ever do that. If Christ were here in physical form, to take his hand and do something with it that is sinful, ah, never. Paul wants us to understand that this is the body of Christ. This is Christ's body. It's not ours. We ought to use it and do with it and do to it that which is only pleasing to Christ. The implications are enormous. There are huge implications for how we treat and speak, not only, uh, not only what we do with this body, but there are huge implications for how we treat and speak to one another. Because we are all members of Christ's body. And no one would seek to abuse his own body. Not if you're in a right state of mind, you wouldn't. We take care of our bodies, right? We treat our bodies gently and with kindness. We are all members of the same body. So the question it raises is, how should you treat Christ's body? How should you speak to Christ's body? How should you speak about Christ's body? In the end, much, much of the problem in Corinth, much of the problem in many churches, is that we either refuse or are unable to embrace our true identity. As believers, too often, our identity is the product of past experiences. 
We allow our past to define who we are rather than allowing God's word to define who we are. And so we tend to live like we have in the past. We tend to treat ourselves and other people like we have in the past. We tend to find our identity in who we were before Christ. That's what Paul has been driving home to the church in Corinth ever since verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So live like it. We fail to embrace the fact that we are a new creation. The old has passed. Thus, in the end, the ancient Greeks had it right. They just simply answered the question wrongly. Know thyself. Know thyself. That's what we need to do as believers. We need to know who we are in Christ. If you're a believer, listen, you are not the sum of your past mistakes. You're not. You have been washed. You have been sanctified, made holy, set apart by Christ and for the glory of God. You have been justified, imputed with Christ's righteousness, and as a believer, you stand before the judgment seat of God and the verdict has already been cast, not guilty. You're free. You're free to live for the glory of Christ. Stop living as though you're guilty. Stop living as though you've been condemned. You are a new creation. You are the body of Christ. You are not only to live a life that points toward Christ, you are to live the life of Christ in this world. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father,